Hello, good morning, good evening, or good night, whatever time it is over there where you're listening. Uh, I just wanted to say that, you know, studying for the MCAT is hard, but knowing where to start can be harder. So, join me on this journey where I'm going to try to break down all the contents of the MCAT, and hopefully we can master this content together. So I'm also a pre-med student that's looking for ways to stay motivated and just to, you know, fully understand the contents of this test. Studies have shown that teaching other people actually helps you learn yourself. So I hope that by the end of this, everyone has found their method to, you know, master this content and feel confident by test day. So join me and I'm going to try to break down things through mnemonics and try to come up with fun ways to understand this stuff. And yeah, we could go ahead and get started. All right, so for today's chapter, we're going to be going through chapter one of general chemistry. So the general chemistry review. And today's topic is atomic structure. So it kind of covers the basics of, you know, what a proton is, what an electron is, um, <clears throat> and as well as a few trends on the periodic table. Uh, I'm also going to be talking about uh, transition states and all that. So stay tuned and we will get into that right now. All right, so before we start, we should start by distinguishing the difference between a cation and an anion. And if you need a refresher from Gen Chem or don't know the difference, um, just know that a cation is an ion with a positive charge and an anion is an ion with a negative charge. And I remember that my professor from uh, Chem 101 uh, re reminded us how to remember this. And she basically drew the positive sign on the board and then drew two eyes on top of it and drew a smiley face below the positive sign. And she pointed out that it looks like a cat. So the positive kind of looks like a cat nose. And that's how you can remember cation. Um, but anyways, let's talk about size of uh, the parts of an atom. So we know that an atom has the neutron, the proton, and the electron. It's important to know that the neutron is the largest particle or the largest part of an atom. And the proton comes next, so the neutron is larger than the proton, and the proton is larger than the electron. So overall, the electron is the smallest unit. We should also be familiar with Avogadro's number for the exam, um, for exam day. And just to refresh your memory on that, Avogadro's number is 6.02 times 10 to the 23rd. And I guess for the sake of the exam, we could just do 6 times 10 to the power of 23. Uh, you know, because no calculators exist and all that. Um, but anyways, if you are ever asked to calculate the atomic mass, you should know that it's the sum of the protons plus neutrons. And yeah, um, and then atomic weight, there's a difference between atomic weight and atomic mass. Atomic weight is the average of weight. Uh, so just know that. But usually you'll be asked about atomic mass because that's what's available on the periodic table. Uh, next, you should know that Max Planck discovered the energy emitted as electromagnetic radi radiation from matter comes in bundles, aka quanta. So I'm sure you've heard of quantum numbers. Um, so that's um, kind of where this originates from. And we also have Planck's constant. So the guy that discovered this, his constant is E is equal to HF. And H is the constant, uh, which is 6.6 .6 times 10 to the negative 34 joules um, time seconds. And in this case, in E equals HF, F is frequency. So I know that was a lot. Um, just be sure to go over this on your own, because uh, it's kind of hard to listen in on a bunch of equations. So I'm going to skip any equations, unless they're super important. Um, 
all right so i do have a few more equations to go over but i'm gonna go ahead and skip them just because it's once again it's gonna be hard to follow along all right so moving on to some definitions we should know the difference between ground state and excited state and these might be self-explanatory because ground state is when an atom is in the state of lowest energy uh so just think of you know grounded um not excited not yeah, it's pretty self-explanatory okay and then next we have excited state which is when an atom or um, at least one electron uh, is moved up an energy state and because of this it causes the excitation of that electron um, you should also know that uh, when a photon is em uh, emitted you can calculate the energy using Planck's equation or the equation with Planck's constant which is E equals HF and we just went over that, so uh, make sure to review that a little bit better. Um, but you should also know that going from a higher to a lower state um, emits a photon. So higher to lower, a photon is emitted. And then going from a lower to higher state, a photon is absorbed. Uh, next, we should know the different kinds of transition states. So we have the Lyman series, we have the Balmer series, and we have the Passion series. And these, once again, are kind of hard to uh, visualize, so I recommend uh, kind of searching up a picture, uh, getting familiar with a diagram of it. But next, moving on, uh, we should be familiar with the Pauli exclusion principle, which states that no two electrons in an atom can have the same set of quantum numbers. And these quantum numbers or values are N, L, ML, and MS. And in order to determine the maximum number of electrons a shell can hold, the equation is 2n to the power of 2. So always remember that if you ever get a question about how many electrons a certain shell can hold, it's 2n to the power of 2. So going back to those quantum numbers, uh, you should be familiar with uh, the possibility of each, um, what's it called, of each value. So for example, n is equal to quantum number, principal quantum number. And n can go from 1 to any range of numbers, so, right? Like n is just a singular number. It could be 1, 2, 3, etc. And then l depends on n in order to determine its maximum value. And l is the angular momen momentum quantum number. So angular momentum quantum number. And l can range um, as well, but l is equal to n minus 1, basically. So... Let's say we have a number of n is equal to 2. The values of l could be only 0 and 1 because n is equal to 1. I mean, n is equal to, I'm sorry, l is equal to n minus 1. So I hope that's clear. So n can be any number, l is equal to n minus 1. <clears throat> Next, we have ml, which is magnetic quantum number. And this determines the orientation of um, an, elect or an atom. And this uh, basically also ranges and is based on L. So M of L is based on L. And ML uh, is negative L to positive L. So let's backtrack a little bit. Remember how I said if N is equal to 2, then L would be 0 to 1? Well, now that you know that L is 0 to 1, then we could say that M is equal to negative 1 to positive 1. So it'd be negative 1, 0, positive 1. 
All right, and lastly, we have ms. So ms is the spin quantum number, and ms is positive uh, half to negative half. If I hope that makes sense. So positive half to negative or negative half. And yeah, those are all the values that we should be familiar with. All right, so now that we've covered those quantum values, um, you should go ahead and practice them a little bit just to be more familiar with them and give yourself a scenario where you're given uh, uh, a certain value of n and then figure out the rest of the um, values based on that. All right, so next we should be familiar with the sublevels on the periodic table. They're indicated on the periodic table. So there's actually a trend. Um, so if you're not familiar with it, but there's the S, D, P block, and uh, the F block. All right, so alkali and alkaline earth metals make up the S block. And I'll get uh, more into detail about what each um, block uh, means and what each sublevel means and how much they hold. But anyways, alkali and alkaline are the S block. Next, we have the transition metals. Those are considered the D block. Uh, we have the P block, which is anything beyond the transition metals. So, you know, the stairs, including the halogens, um, that's the P block. And then also just know that, of course, hydrogen is in the S block. It's just on the other side of the periodic table with the P block. But that's the only one that doesn't count as part of the P block that's in that area. And then obviously, whatever's below the periodic table, those two rows, uh, that's the F block. So, what does this mean? Well, the S um, sublevel, it can hold two electrons maximum. And then the P, which is the second uh, value, it can hold six electrons. And then the D um, sublevel can hold 10. And then the F can hold 14. So, um, what this means is that uh, when you're figuring out electron configurations, you're going to need to know this. And you can just look at the periodic table and figure out what the configuration is or what the notation is. So, um, how do people determine uh, what each sublevel can hold? So, basically, the maximum number of electrons in each subshell is 4L plus 2. Also, know that. Um, when you're doing electron configurations, uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, I do recommend searching this up just because it's uh, a lengthy lesson. Uh, but it's basically the notation where you've seen like 1s2, 2s2, 2p6, uh, that long configuration uh, instead of writing out um, just the element, right? Um, but you should know that a shortcut people use instead of writing out, you know, the whole configuration because sometimes it could be up to... I don't know, like six, seven numbers long. People use the noble gases as a shortcut. So in order to do that, based um, on the periodic table trends, you could just look at what the most, uh, going, so obviously you're going from left to right, looking at it left to right. Let's say you are trying to figure out the electron configuration of zinc, for example. You're gonna look at what noble gas is closest to zinc, um, like the what's in the row before it, and you're going to use that noble gas and continue your configuration starting from the beginning of the row where zinc is. And that's just a shortcut so you don't include, you know, the rest of the numbers that don't need to be included. 
So there are exceptions to electron configuration that we should all be familiar with. Uh, the main two exceptions are chromium um, and copper. So these are exceptions because um, the S subshell is not full when you're writing out these configurations. So for chromium, for example, it has an atomic number of 24, but its electron configuration is argon, 4s1, 3d5. And you might be like, oh, okay, whatever. It doesn't sound weird to me, but the weird part is that I said 4s1, when in reality, s can hold two electrons. And um, in this case, that just means that it took an electron out of the s subshell, and instead it's being used in the d subshell. And um, these are just exceptions that you have to memorize. Um, there are other examples in which, um, uh, what's it called, elements uh, actually take this notation where they take electrons out of the S subshell um, and put it into the D subshell instead. But this is usually when you have extra electrons or when you're missing electrons, for example. Um, so chromium and copper are just natural elements that uh, need these exceptions. And this is kind of based on Hund's rule. Uh, and if you haven't heard of Hund's rule, it's when uh, basically it states that first electrons have fill a shell before fully filling. Um, so if that doesn't make sense, when electrons are filling their subshells um, or shells or whatever you want to call it, uh, they tend to fill one by one first and then they double up. So they don't start by doubling up because, as you know, subshells uh, or I'm sorry, shells have two pair, uh, one pair of electrons, right? Um, and this is kind of confusing to understand. I'm sorry that it's coming out really confusing, but just think of the example of you sitting on a bus. When you're sitting on a bus, uh, you're obviously going to sit wherever you see an empty seat first. And then once the bus is completely full, then passengers start to pair up and sit next to each other. So think of that when you're thinking of how electrons fill the shells. So first they're gonna fill as many empty seats as possible and then they start to double up. And uh, you should know what the terms paramagnetic and diamagnetic mean as well. So paramagnetic means unpaired electrons with spin and then diamagnetic means two electron paired or total spin of zero. Uh, so just be familiar with that, just in case you're asked for definitions. So overall, uh, this is basically what concludes the chapter. And I know it's, it's very confusing, and I know I, I got confusing in between, uh, but it's just a little difficult to kind of explain uh, without visuals because, uh, for example, you could use a flow diagram for electron configuration if you're not comfortable using the periodic table trend. Uh, so there's multiple ways to do these things. Uh, I personally uh, found it very helpful for GenChem to watch the Organic Chemistry Tutor, so shout out to him. Um, but yeah, uh, that's about it for this chapter. Thank you for listening, and I hope you have a great day and good luck with your studies.